Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Good to hear your voices as we sing God's praise together. We're going to study his word. So let me invite you to open your Bible to two places. So if you can start turning to Psalm 119 and hold your place there. And then if you can also start turning to John chapter 15. And I just want to welcome our guests and welcome our friends who are joining us on live stream. It's a joy to have uh, you along for the ride as we start a new series called uh, All the Feels, Bringing Your Emotions to God. Uh, this is going to be a little bit out of our normal flow of things because usually on any given Sunday, we're just looking at one text of scripture and just expounding that text and drinking deeply from that one passage. Uh, and that's what we're going to do, Lord willing, starting next week and through this series, we're going to dive into different psalms. But uh, I just thought it might be helpful for us as we start this new series to do a little bit of a, of a big overview of what the Bible says uh, broadly about our emotional life as followers of Christ. So Psalm 119, we'll start there. I'm just going to read a, a small section beginning in verse 49. And I want you just to notice, if you mark in your Bible, that's fine, you could do that, but notice the feeling words in this little passage. So Psalm 119, verse 49, the psalmist writes, remember your word to your servant, you have given me hope through it. This is my comfort in my affliction, your promise has given me life. The arrogant constantly ridicule me, but I do not turn away from your instruction. Lord, I remember your judgments from long ago and find comfort, fury, interesting two words back to back, fury seizes me because of the wicked who reject your instruction. So we'll just stop there and you just see hope and comfort and life and fury, right? All the good emotions, hard emotions, it's, it's all sort of this jumbled mix in the life of the believer. And then John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is his farewell discourse. These are some of his last words to his disciples on the night before he's crucified. Notice again the feeling words. You might want to highlight them. Here's what Jesus says in John 15, beginning in verse 27. Note that first word. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled or fearful. You have heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. So there again, Jesus parting words on the night before he's crucified and he says to his disciples, I want you to have something. Not just I want you to do something, I want you to have something, and the thing he wants them to have is peace. <laughs> I want you to have peace, I want you to have faith, I want you to believe me, that's why I'm telling you these things in advance so that when it goes down, you know you had reason to trust me, not reason to not trust me. So I want you to have, essentially, I want you to have faith, hope, and love. I want you to have love, I want you to have joy, I want you to have peace, right? The Christian life, you think about this, it's not just a list of spiritual chores for us to do. And, and honestly, I think one of the reasons we're drawn to that is because that vision of the Christian life is a lot more manageable. 
It's a lot more manageable. You, you can pull that off, right? A list of chores. So, so what we end up doing, if that's the center of the Christian life is just chores and spiritual activities, is we end up skating through this, skating along the surface of life while bombs are going off inside. We're skating along the surface of things and we're not realizing how much of our lives is, are controlled by fear and shame and anxiety and guilt. And these things control and anger and resentment, right? The, the, the most frequent command in the whole Bible, do you know what it is? Do not fear. There's no other command in God's word that is mentioned more often than that. And it's not, an, it's not a command to do something, it's a command to not do something, and it's a command to not feel something, namely fear, which is a positive command to trust me. Right, so, so who needs a series like this? Who needs a series on what the Bible says about our emotions? A few categories to prime the pump. The person who wants to more fully enjoy God and others needs a series like this. The person who wants more fully to enjoy God's good gifts. Are you thankful for the gifts that God gives us in, in this life and in this world? Are we cultivating gratitude? The person who can't seem to get a grip on his or her anger the person who keeps burning through relationships, like lots of people piling up in the rearview mirror of your life, lots of bridges that are down and burned, right? Maybe there's a story there. The person who thinks emotions are just a sign of weakness needs a series like this. The person who realizes acting on my feelings often leads me to do things I regret, which is just a long way of saying, I need this series. <laughs> The person who needs a series like this where we study what God's word says about our emotions and our feelings, that person is me, right? The, the Psalms are gonna guide us through the bulk of this series, but before we dive into feeling word after feeling word and Psalm after Psalm starting next Sunday, I wanna try to show you that your emotions matter to God. And I wanna do that by getting us to look at four massive biblical constructs or four massive biblical realities. And the first is the reality of creation. We bear God's image. So your emotions matter to God by virtue of creation, by virtue of the imago Dei, by virtue of the fact that you bear God's image. So I'm gonna unpack a loaded theological term. This is a $3 word from the history of theology in, in the glossary section of a theology textbook, but it matters for us to understand what the concept is. Here's the term, impassable. God is impassable. So that's obviously telling you really something that God is not because the prefix im, like impossible, means not possible. So it tells you that God is not something. He is not passable. So then the question becomes, what, what does passable mean? Here's what impassable means. It means God is not vulnerable to suffering. It's not saying that God doesn't have emotions. It's simply saying that he possesses his emotions in a divine manner. So he is God, he is transcendent, he's not pulled downstream by his emotions in a way that we are, right? As finite beings, creatures, and certainly fallen creatures, we get pulled downstream by our emotions. God has emotions, but they never pull him downstream. He's impassable in that sense. You see this sort of idea come through in a number of different places. Acts chapter 17, it's gonna be on the screen. The apostle Paul is preaching. 
And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands, get this phrase, as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. What what is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying that the road of need between God and the world runs in one direction. We need him. He provides everything. He gives everything. He needs nothing. Right? He didn't make the world. He didn't make you and me because there was a hole in his heart that's shaped like you. And only you can fill it. No, he didn't create the world out of necessity. He created the world out of abundance. He was enlarging the circle of Trinitarian joy and fellowship. That's creation was a spillover of the joy of God, not an expression of the needs of God. He needs nothing. The Apostle Paul speaks in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, of the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And that's a fascinating little phrase that you can just skip right over in the early goings of his letter to Timothy. But the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, the word blessed there, it's not the word that means praised, the praised God. It's the word that means happy. So it's the gospel of the glory of the God who is happy, the God who is joyful, right? So if you forget to have your morning quiet time tomorrow, God's not gonna be mopey all day. Right? That's not, you're not going to ruin his day. Right? He is eternally joyous. The, the, the scripture speaks repeatedly about this reality that in his presence is fullness of what? Joy. And at his right hand are pleasures for every more. And what are the marks of his kingdom? The hallmarks of his kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy. You get to his kingdom, you get to where God is, you get to where joy is because he's a God of inexhaustible joy. You remember when you were a teenager, right? And some of you are there right now, but the rest of us, you remember when you were a teenager, just how the highs were so high and the lows were so low and it's nine o'clock in the morning, right? Or it's early in the morning. You haven't even gone to school yet and you've been at the absolute top of the mountain in the absolute deepest part of the valley because you've got so many things you're processing at the same time, right? There's just so many emotions and they're all over the place, right? I've got great news. God is not a teenager, right? He's, he's not pulled in every direction. He doesn't have mood swings. His, his, his emotions don't sweep him up and carry him places where he doesn't wanna go. That's what divine impassibility means. It's really, really good news. You should want God to be impassable because you think about the implications of it. A God who is drowning in suffering and pain can't rescue a world that's drowning in suffering and pain. He can't rescue you if you're drowning in suffering and pain. We sing the hymn, when all around my soul gives way, and God doesn't say, hey, all around my soul's giving way, nobody, right? No, when all around my soul gives way, he then, He is immovable, he is a fortress, he is a rock, he is an anchor, he's not moving. He is is secure. God's impassibility doesn't mean that God feels nothing. That's an easy way that the divine impassibility doctrine can be misapplied. 
that God feels nothing. You know, he's just this, this robot in heaven with supernatural powers. No, he does feel, he feels love, he feels compassion, he feels anger, he feels grief. But it means that his feelings, that he very much does have, his feelings are always aligned with his righteous will. And this is why God can be a rock for us as people, right? We're blown around by the storms of the world and God isn't blown around by the storms of this world. God is impassable and that's relevant for our lives. Next, God is also passionate. So the complementary truth to God's impassibility and that is that God is passionate. So in the Bible, this one's not hard to find at all. I mean, just you could turn to any page in the Bible and you're reading a story where you can see God cares about something very, very deeply on this page in the Bible. God is ticked off on this page of the book. God is defending his people. Down goes Pharaoh, down goes the Egyptian army, down go 185,000 Assyrian uh, soldiers, right? It just, God cares, God is involved, he is passionate. Here's some text, Isaiah 62, five, it's gonna be on the screen. As a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. What a, what a wonderful analogy that is. God is basically saying to you, you ever been to a wedding? Say, you ever been to a wedding and you see the way that a groom rejoices over his bride? Now you get it. That's how I rejoice over you. He very much feels joy toward his people. Deuteronomy 4, God feels some other things as well. Do not make an idol for yourselves, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. There's a right kind of jealous, jealousy. There's a righteous kind of jealousy. Psalm 78, 40, how often they rebelled against God in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. He's grieved. Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Another one of those analogies, as a husband rejoices over his wife, so I rejoice over my people. As a father has compassion over his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And then Exodus chapter 34, this is a huge one. This is a massive milestone in the Old Testament. Is, is Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, I'm gonna have to hide you in the cleft of the rock so that as my glory passes, you're not incinerated by what you see, the inexhaustible glory of who I am. And so as God passes the trailing edge of God's glory, you can hear God speaking. And these are the words he speaks to Moses. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but who will not leave the guilty unpunished. That is a mouthful of revelation of the God who is glorious, right? In Zechariah, you, you see something of the brimming joy of God over his people. In Zechariah, we find, or rather Zephaniah, God rejoices and sings over his people. This is God who is rejoicing and singing over his people. That, friends, that's the God who made us. That's what God is like. He made us in his image. So the next point is this, God designed us with emotions. God has emotions, God has feelings, and he designed us with feelings as well. You, you sing around the house, you sing around your apartment, right? You sing in the car, you sing because the God who made you is a singing God. In Zephaniah three, and in Hebrews chapter two, Jesus leads the congregation 
in singing. I love the, the story, if you read Chronicles of Narnia, the, the way that C.S. Lewis unpacks the creation of the world is what? It's a picture of Aslan who represents God singing the worlds into motion, singing the stars into their places. You hear this low rumble in Aslan and he begins to burst forth in song and here comes creation into existence. The, the, the overflowing joy of God. So you think about that, you know, since the fall, our emotions are, are complicated, right? We, we can't trust them as infallible guides to the truth. They don't, they don't necessarily lead us into everything that is, that is right and, and is true. But, but get this, your emotional capacities aren't a result of the fall. It's not like Adam and Eve had no emotions and then they rebelled against God and it's like, hey, that feeling you're feeling, that's called shame. Welcome to a fallen world. That's your first feeling, welcome to shame. No, they felt all kinds of things before that. God tricked out the garden for these people, right? I mean, he didn't, he didn't feed them through a tube. He filled the world with delights. It was a place of aesthetics. It was flowers, it was gardens, it was beauty, it was the cool of the evening. It was stars above, lights in the sky. It was absolutely amazing. He wanted to fill a world of delights for them, not just make the garden functional. That's the kind of God that we know. God is not only sovereignly transcendent, he's sovereignly relational. He makes a covenant with people, not because he has to, but because he wants to and he chooses to. And when he makes that covenant with Abraham, he says, from now on, somebody does harm to you, I'm coming after them. And someone does good to you, I'm gonna bless them. It's a covenant relationship. It's a sovereign covenant that he makes with his people. And he says, later in scripture, he says, I will rejoice to do you good with all my heart and mind. That's, that's a God who is not aloof, who is not distant, who isn't like, hey, I'll, you know, your people call my people. It, it is a deeply involved, all in for our blessing. He's not the God of the Stoics. He names himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's gonna be in it with them to the very end. It's interesting that God introduces himself to Moses as a God who's slow to anger. And when you come over to the New Testament and the Holy Spirit fills believers and the Apostle Paul says, you know what you're called to be? Slow to anger. It's a family likeness. He made us in his image. Slow to anger is what we are becoming under the work of the Holy Spirit. So our emotions matter to God because we bear God's image. Second, our emotions matter to God not by, simply by virtue of creation, but by virtue of devotion. Our emotions are involved in our relationship with God. So I'm gonna move a little bit more quickly here because the rest of the series, we're gonna live in this in Psalm after Psalm. But some years back, I, I met an Old Testament professor uh, named Dr. Andrew Schmutzer, and he teaches at Moody Bible Institute. He's a brilliant Old Testament Hebrew scholar. And his specialization is the book of Psalms. He is not, uh, he is not an easy read. Um, he's not really fun to read. He's deeply insightful, but he's not fun to read. And one of the reasons he's not fun to read is because his writings are laced with a sense of the pain of this man's story. He writes about his story in one a small book, a highly sensitive book called Naming Your Abuse. And he tells the story of what happened to him when he was a child. 
And in some of his other writings, he tells the story of why it was that he wanted to take all of his training as a Hebrew exegete and Hebrew scholar and pointed in the direction of the Psalms. And he says, it wasn't because of some dispassionate, curious interest in ancient poetry. I needed these songs. I needed to understand them because they somehow understood me. And when I read the Psalms, they were finishing my sentences, my trauma. They, were, they got me. They understood where I am and what I've known in this hard world. And, and Dr. Schmutzer, he, he would say, he says, my concern about so much of scholarship in the Psalms is that they miss the point of what the book is about. He says, so much of Psalm scholarship ignores the main drive of the book. And he says, here's the drive of the book. God has given a gift to believers. And that gift is, I'm gonna give you a language you can speak back to me in a world that's really messed up. This is how you can talk to me when your life feels like it's coming apart at the seams. And, and, and he would say in the subtitle of his book on the Psalms that the Psalms are a language for all the seasons of the soul. God's gift to believers is, I'm gonna give you some way to talk to me in every season you could possibly go through in this hard world. The Psalms are people praying their fears, tears, joys and praise, right? What do we say to God when we're fearful? What do we say to God when we're caught in the grip of guilt and shame? What do we say to God when we're sad, when we're depressed, when we're angry, when we feel lonely? What do we say to God? And he says, here's language. Here's language you can use. Here's language that gets you. I see where you're at. I think about Psalm 63 in my own personal life. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory for your steadfast love is better than life. My lips shall praise you. And I remember reading Psalm 63 a few years after my dad died as a teenager and I was so struck by those words. They so understood where I was and I walked over to the piano and I sat down and I had a notebook and I wrote a song and it was inspired by that same exact language. And the very first words of the song were just, I thirst, I thirst for you. And when it seems like there's no water, I thirst for you. When my strength is all but gone, you're my strength in times of weakness. Psalm 63 got me. Then you fast forward and I'm in college and I, I stumble across Psalm chapter 30 where it says, you, O Lord, have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. Therefore, my soul shall sing praise to you and not be silent. And that resonated deeply in me because that was a season in my life where renewal was, was just this surprise of joy was coming into my life. It was like personal revival, personal renewal, the inflooding of the grace of God and joy in my season. And Psalm 30, it's like, that's gonna be my new song. Got a language for every season. It's a book that gives us something to say no matter the season. In every season, we have a song. So your emotions matter to God by virtue of creation because you were made in God's image. 
and by virtue of devotion because your emotions are involved in your relationship with God and by virtue of incarnation because we see the heart of God in Jesus Christ. We see the heart of God in Jesus Christ. You know, what's the story, the big story that the Bible is telling? It's, it's telling us a story that God wanted to share his joy. He wanted to expand the circle of Trinitarian fellowship. He wanted to pour out of the abundance of his joy on those he makes in his image. And so he makes Adam and Eve in the garden. He invites them into fellowship and into the enjoyment of himself. And he would have a people for himself, starting with Adam and Eve. He would have a people for himself and he would bring his people into his place and they would live under his rule and under his blessing and they would be safe and they would be secure and they would be loved and they would be provided for. All their needs would be met, right? And that's how the story began but then we fell, we fell from grace. And the rest of the story is that there's only one way back home after we've fallen away from grace and it's gonna cost God everything. And then, which begs the question, will God pay the cost to get his fallen people back? Paul even asked that question hypothetically in the book of Romans where he says, for a Good, one, good person, someone might die. But why would God, God's son, give his life for his enemies? And that's what happened because you keep reading in Romans chapter five and Paul says, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It would cost him everything and he did it anyway. Jesus came because of love. That's the motivation of the incarnation. It's probably the first, if you were raised in a Christian home, it's probably the first verse you ever memorized. Is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There's a simplicity about John 3.16. There is something so beautifully and richly personal about it, right? The apostle Paul never got over it. He would write in Galatians chapter two about being crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. And the life that I now live, he says, I live by faith in the son of God who what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what animated the life of faith in the apostle Paul. He loved me. Why, I'll never know. But he loved me and he gave himself. He paid the highest price to get me back one of the greatest theologians in church history, reaches all the way back there to the early 300s, is a man named Athanasius, and he wrote a book called On the Incarnation. And in that whole little book, he asks the question, why did the God-man come into the world? And repeatedly, he answers the question with something so simple that it almost embarrasses scholars of today that someone of the greatness and magnitude of, a, of an Athanasius. I mean, this is the redwoods of Christian theology that Athanasius would say something as simple as he came because he loved us. In the heart of a holy God, there was love for a sinful world. That's why he came. Athanasius went so far as to say that the manner of the crucifixion was providentially chosen by God because there was no other way for God to die with his arms wide open. 
And he said, we see, even in the the posture of the cross itself, the wide-armed extension of the mercy of God to a sinful world. Jesus came because of love. Your emotions matter when you consider this next point is Jesus felt and redemptively expressed all the emotions on the human spectrum. Now Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form and he is is a vibrant human being. He is full of life, he is full of feeling, he is full of emotion. Right, I don't know how many of you saw the uh, 1970s film, Jesus of Nazareth. How many of you saw that one? The one with the crystal blue eyed uh, Jesus with a crazy, awesome British accent, right? Just straight out of uh, Cambridge, uh, Jesus. And, and I watched that as a kid, and I remember seeing that Jesus, and he always looked like he wanted to be somewhere else. Like in every scene, he looked like he wished he was somewhere else. Uh, and. You know, every time he looked at people, he looked as if he was um, judging their life choices that led them up to this moment, right? There was that kind of aura that just came off of him. And then you fast forward from there to the late 1990s, and I, I, was, a, uh, I was a manager of a Lifeway Christian bookstore for a little while there. And, uh, and that next Jesus iteration came out in film form in the late 1990s. And I'll just say, in Longview, Texas, everybody hated the new Jesus, Uh, And they hated the new Jesus. Here's what I actually heard. They hated him because he had an American accent rather than a British accent. And we love our Jesus to have a British accent. And he was too happy. Actually was the case. He was too happy. He, he's, he poked fun at his disciples. You know, he held the plank up in his eye as if that was almost uh, laden with a little bit of humor, the way that he was talking about the plank in your eye and the speck in another person's eye. He was just, he was just too silly to, to really be revered. The older 1970s Jesus, in case you've not seen him, I'm gonna pull up a picture. This is how he said hi to people, right? So there's 1970s Jesus greeting people. Uh, you, you just feel the warmth, right? You, f- you feel the welcome. Last night, last night I looked up 20 different pictures from the 1977 Jesus of Nazareth and they all look like that, right? I mean, he's, uh, he's turning over tables, he looks like that. He's, he's saying, let the little children come to me for a blessing. He looks exactly like that. Every picture, 19 out of 20 pictures that I saw last night, he looks exactly like that. Well, when you get into the pages of the Gospels, Jesus is so warm. He is so, except people want to be around him. Right, they're drawn like a moth to flame. They just come, to, except for the arrogant ones, they come to Jesus like moths to flame. Jesus even, he's talking to the religious leaders and he says, so, um, I'm trying to figure you guys out because the guy who came before me and rolled out the red carpet, his name was John the Baptist and you hated him because he had one speed and his one speed was spiritual intensity and you hated that and he played a dirge and you didn't mourn but I play the flute and you won't dance. He said, so maybe, maybe we're not the problem, right? But he's basically saying, so, so spiritual intensity guy came and you hated him Joy guy comes and you don't like him either because you don't want to dance and you don't want to mourn. Here's what uh, Jonathan Pennington in his excellent book called Jesus the Great Philosopher, he writes this, he teaches up at Southern Seminary. He says, Jesus was described as eating and drinking and indeed was maligned as a glutton and wine imbiber a friend of publicans and sinners. He went to a lot of dinner parties. People, regular, non-religious people were very attracted to him. He must have been accessible, warm, and joyful. 
You know, the primary word that's associated throughout the gospels with Jesus is compassion. More than any other word, when God walked this earth, everybody said, did you see his compassion? Could you feel the compassion that emanated off this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the great Princeton theologian of the late 1800s and early 1900s, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield. Uh, and he would write, he wrote a little book, which was so, so surprising to me because I thought I had my finger on the pulse of Warfield in general, and I did not think he was the kind of guy who would write a book called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And he writes a book just about the emotions of Jesus Christ, and he looks at every relevant text in the entire pages of the Gospels. It's a thorough scholarly work, but deeply edifying. And here's one of the things that he says. What John tells us is that Jesus, this is after the death of Lazarus, Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but irrepressible anger. He was angry at his last enemy, death, right? Furthermore, he goes on to say, Jesus burned with an anger against the wrongs he met with in his journey, as truly as he melted with pity at the sight of the world's misery. And it was out of these two emotions that his actual mercy proceeded. He goes on to write about the joy of Jesus. Jesus' heart was open and readily responded to the delights of human association and bound itself to others in a happy fellowship. His coming into the world was announced as good tidings of great joy. Joy he had, but it was not the shallow joy of mere pagan delight in living, nor the delusive joy of a hope destined to failure, but the deep exultation of a conqueror setting captives free. That's, that's Jesus. You watch him in the pages of the gospel and he's here to set the captives free and that's why he looks like he's been singing. He looks like he's been joyful, right? The scripture would speak about how he was affected as he lived as a genuine, fully human person, fully alive in this world. And the writer of the Hebrews would say he was touched by the feelings of our infirmities and that enables him to be a great and faithful high priest. Your emotions matter to God by virtue of creation and devotion and incarnation and lastly, sanctification because God is making every part of us new. Not just our minds, not just our volition or our will, but our emotions and our feelings as well. We're gonna explore this more in coming weeks, but here's a point just to hold on to for now. God's commands and promises are addressed to our feelings, not just actions and thoughts. Now, so you look at God's word and what do you read? You read, love the Lord your God, hope in God. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of God. Rejoice in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Those aren't like things you can just pick off and start doing them. You know, this afternoon, it's a state. It's a state of the soul. It's a state of, of our hearts. Sanctification is not mainly about Christians just doing things. It's mainly about what kind of people we are becoming in the molding hands of God's Holy Spirit. He's transforming us, not just the outward parts, but the inward heart of our lives. You ever known somebody who has a lot of answers from the Bible, but everybody hates to be on the same shift as that person? Ever known a Christian who seemed really mature but can't offer an apology to save his life? You know, that's a discipleship problem. 
God's word wants to address that, to create the humility necessary to say, man, I'm really sorry, that wasn't on you, that was on me. The apostle Paul, he talks about a list of things that destroy us and destroy people around us. And you know what's on that list? Galatians chapter five. The works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, right? So some of those things are fairly easy to avoid, right? My no sorcery streak is really strong. I haven't, I haven't been doing that at all, right? Hatred though, strife, jealousy, Now we're getting real, right? Outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. That's, that's, what's that mean? Splitting off and burning bridges. That's, that's what that is. Envy, drunkenness, carousing, or anything similar. Right, so he he says, you wanna be discipled? You wanna be controlled by the Holy Spirit? He's gonna start affecting some of that stuff, those feelings, those emotions. They gotta go now, they have to go. And here's where I'm taking, the Holy Spirit says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, feeling words, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God's agenda for our lives involves not just the things that we do, but the ways that we feel, the ways that we inhabit the world and relationships around us so that when we hear God and God begins to shape our lives and we mature, we love more selflessly. We have more joy in him. We don't vent our feelings, especially if those feelings are gonna be toxic and destructive to other people, right? So here's what I hope is gonna happen. I'll just give us three things on our way out. Here's what I hope is gonna happen. And I hope you'll join me in praying for these things as we move through this series. I hope our time in God's word is gonna help us begin to cultivate three impulses. And here they are, number one. We're gonna run to the Lord. We're not gonna hide anything from him because he can handle everything that we could bring him. We're not not gonna run from the Lord, we're gonna run to the Lord with the mess in his direction. Second, we're gonna remember the gospel, which is to say we're gonna remember our acceptance before God isn't riding on how well we start pulling this stuff off tomorrow or by the end of this series. It's gonna take some time and that's gonna be fine because we're set. We're secure because of Christ's performance in our place. We're gonna remember the gospel. Third, we're gonna help each other. We're gonna help each other. We're gonna learn to stay. We're gonna learn to walk alongside one another, other sinners. We're gonna learn to look to Jesus and do it together, right? And we do those kinds of things, we're gonna start to grow. It's not necessarily gonna happen as a bookend once the series is over, we're all great, but it's to begin to cultivate these new instincts and impulses that are gonna allow us, by God's grace, to mature.